Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Welcome and a happy 4th of July. I am here with the esteemed Baron Robert Von Gibbs to celebrate a special Hacks on Tap 4th of July spectacular. Hey, Robert. Murphy, how are you? I, I Hearing that music, I feel like I'm in a flag-waving parade in New Hampshire or something. Yeah, in like 1911. We, we operate <laughs> under the crushing boot of the legal system here, and because our, our budget for needle drops is exactly $1 a year, we had to go back to the old-timey archives for free historical needle drops. But a salute to Jeff Fox, our engineer, for whipping that together. with the, I like it. Happy the, 4th of July to you, Murphy, and to all of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it's going to be a fun one. It's one of my favorite holidays because I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy. But Gibbs. What do you think? I mean, we talked about this, and you should tell the good people. We decided to have a little different show for our 4th of July spectacular. Why don't you fill them in? Yeah, we decided, like, let's not go grab a guest and ruin their holiday weekend by trying to <laughs> jam them into time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to the top, Pull a to favor. The... You don't need to <laughs> right. see your kids. You can right. talk to us about the Iowa caucus. <laughs> right, to, to ruining their timing and, and their barbecue. So it's just you and me, Murphy, and we're going to you know, chew a little on uh, what's happened over the past week and dive into a bit deeper a mailbag. I had a preview, looked at some of those questions. I think there's some good ones. I think they can, um, uh, I think we can tell some stories and uh, and use it to get into uh, a decent amount of chit chat around what's going on. I am excited about that. We've been skimping a little on the mailbag, so we're going to make it up. Uh, here on our, our uh, July 4th spectacular. News, right. right, right, exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> Mailbag spectacular. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel, like we, oh, I feel the ratings. Right, uh, blue, yeah, blue we, light special at Kmart. This is huge. We were going to have former presidents Bush and Obama, but we said, no, 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 let's, <laughs> let's, let's do a really long. We got a few good questions on the metric system and uh, mind control. So, because we never read you good people, the, the wacko questions we get. And guess what? We do get a few. But first yeah. of all, this will be a fond memory for you, Robert. Let, let me start with this, because if you're in, if you're part of that, that noble few who have had practical politics careers, particularly in campaign management, in a presidential cycle like we are now, kind of the year before the year, but keep in mind those primaries are coming at the beginning of next year, not so far away, presidential right. primaries. You, you get a little twitch, um, you get a little vibration, a little little nudge of fear uh, at midnight on June 30th because mm. that is when the second quarter FEC report closes. Now, before you switch us off and think, oh, hell, they're getting into accounting now, the FEC is a Federal Election Commission. They require you every quarter when you have a campaign committee or a PAC or all the regulated federal ways to spend money in politics – they require you to put in a report uh, and send it in, and it shows all the money you raised and from whom and all the money you spent. And the most interesting statistic there is the cash-on-hand number of the candidate's actual campaign. We can talk about super PACs and all that later because that's where you really see what they've got, the paper campaign, travel, TV, digital, all the stuff that counts. And I know, and I'm sure you do too, many a campaign manager – 
who spent the last week with the candidate and the staff, finance staff, begging for money, desperately trying to get checks in so they would show up in that cash figure, and at the same time, stuffing their drawer with unpaid invoices to pump that number up, most of which will start to get paid next week. So the vendors love, you know, early July because they finally see some damn cash. Uh, but anyway, it's kind of a pufferfish strategy. And this one is going to count because we're now six yeah. months in and we're going to see it. It'll be publicly released by the FEC. You can read these things. They have a website. You can get deep into what Nikki Haley uh, spends on, uh, uh, you know, uh, box lunches at the senior center or at the pizza ranch uh, in Des Moines. But we got to wait well, normally about two weeks, right? And I would just say, too, out. for all our listeners know it's the deadline because, like me, they've noticed um, – a huge uptick in their inbox around oh, yeah. emails. Oh, I just got out of a meeting and we, 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 we have a goal of a hundred thousand dollars in the next 27 and a half minutes. Can you, <laughs> so it's a little bit crazy. And, and to your point, there's two weeks to actually file a report, but my guess Murphy is because the window closed at midnight, June 30, that you're going to see probably on the fifth of starting about the fifth of July, People are going to start trying to position their number as important and right. big. And to your point, there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown around. There's some uh, some sort of Enron accounting, if you will, uh, <laughs> around this. But I would say to you, Murphy, you, you hit the nail on the head. Pay attention to cash on hand, right? Yeah. It, it's it's and, and we say that because you can't spend money you don't have, right? So cash on hand is both a measure of how much you've raised, but how efficiently you're spending that. What are you spending this on such that, you know, what are you going to buy TV ads with? What are you going to buy bumper stickers and all that kind of mess with uh, in the go forward? And, and a lot of campaigns will have these really super high burn rates. Lots of opposition researchers, uh, when we get to the 15th of July, we'll be downloading these reports to find quirky things like John Edwards' haircut, um, which we found right, uh, right. in 2007. Uh, which was uh, a bit of good fun uh, for a couple of days. But, you know, th there's uh, there's a lot of interesting numbers to it and a lot of big uh, expectations to go with this. And look, it's why the Biden folks probably went a little earlier than they wanted to on the campaign announcement. Because, again, if you start any campaign activity in this three-month window of April 1 through the end of June, you've got to file a report. So if you if you wait until say mid June to start doing anything, you're going to report a pretty small number, and the expectations game is what's going to swamp a totally, lot. Totally, totally. The media really looks at these now. What you try to do, is, and you alluded to this in the campaign, is you say, "All right, our cash on hand isn't going to be great. Our campaign comptroller has a fetish for paying people uh, what we owe them." So. Let's find other stuff. And you get the creative writing juices going, and these ridiculous press releases come out. The only candidate with 14 supporters in American Samoa, or nobody named Fred has ever raised this much money in the month of June. Um, and a lot of top-line numbers. We took in $11 million. Now, what counts is how much of that is left, or did you spend $10 million raising the $11 million, uh, in a low-dollar way? So the early yep. press releases, and this year, I think the press will be a little more suspicious. In the old days, there was a lot of hook, line, and sinker, and you'd win the headline. Now, I mean, Nikki got jammed up, kind of double counting some money, and and I think yep. uh, I think a lot of people are going to want to wait for the real report. But you're going to see a big cloud of spin, and made even more important this year, 
is we have these stupid Soviet-style controls on the Republican debate sponsored by the RNC, which require people running to show 40,000 donors, which is, is basically means you spend $20 trying to get somebody to give you $1 by direct mail to get into the debate. It's the most expensive fundraising ever invented, but there's going to be a lot of looking at how many donors, and there, uh, there's a minimum state thing, uh, right. who who could possibly be in the debate. And, you know, DeSantis will be there. Trump, should he show up, will qualify. Tim Scott, probably. Haley, probably. But, you know, there are a few, like Christie, who are racing, and Bergam and others, uh, to yeah. try to buy enough donations. So that, that'll add, add a whole other level to the, the analysis. Yeah, in 2016, Republicans in an open uh, in, a, in a wide open race decided let's have everybody debate, and it ended up being that they had the the A side essentially and the B side. Right, you had eight yeah, people debating table. the night before, and the kids table yeah. was. Uh, I mean, look, if once you were labeled that, it was really hard to get into uh, uh, get into the adults table. This year, the RNC's decided to put some strict limits on it. To your point, um, Politico had a piece in, in the last couple of days. You know, Trump's still still telling people there's no reason he's going to show up. DeSantis basically hinting if Trump doesn't show up, he's not going to show up. So the question is, when you take off the people who are, A, not qualifying um, from a financial standpoint, the few people that have decided for some reason they're not going to sign the loyalty pledge because, as Will Hurd said, like, I just can't tell a lie and suggest right, that right, to exactly. get on the stage. Kudos to him. I, I, I predict he'll tell a lot just to get on stage because <laughs> if you're not on well, that, that stage, that's what and Christie having... says. I'll I'll sign any piece of toilet paper you got to get a shot at Trump, which I thought was a pretty adroit way to say I will lie. And the truth is, that's what every voter thinks too. So right, go ahead and right, sign this thing and do whatever you want. But uh, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know that uh, again that that August twenty third debate. Remember, Trump wants to take a, his pound of flesh out of Fox. They're hosting the debate. Uh, I don't know, particularly given his polling. Uh, whether he wants to do much with it, um, whether he decides he wants to participate and become sort of a pin cushion. If he doesn't show up, does DeSantis want to get all of that incoming? Yeah. Uh, I just don't know that that debate's going to happen. Now, the one thing that I was looking at the calendar this morning, getting ready for this, Murphy, and I think the one thing that I think will be interesting, two weeks before the debate in Wisconsin that may or may not actually happen is the Iowa State Fair, right? Mm. And uh, on the Republican side, that's going to be a to-do. And I wonder, I just wonder, if a stone doesn't get thrown in the pond here a little bit with a Des Moines Register poll at or around the Iowa State Fair that kind of starts to reset things, uh, has us getting off of this weird, silly addiction to national polling and starts to clarify the idea of who's real in a place like Iowa, who's got a real chance is is... Is Trump running away with it? In Iowa, he's not going to be. He may be in the lead. Uh, it is the kind of last, I, I, I think it's not the last chance for them to make a difference. But boy, if they let Trump win Iowa, uh, they're going to have a much, much steeper climb to wrestling uh, the nomination away. Oh, from hell him. yeah. You, you got to beat him in Iowa, New Hampshire. That kills the giant. 
You know, that that that's the way. There's no magic surge in Florida after Trump's won a few years. They're all going to be dead. Look, that is a brilliant idea for the register because they could totally shuffle the deck. And a few of the candidates are playing that game because they're spending significant money, and they have been for weeks on television. The DeSantis totally. Super PAC has been up for real. Scott has been up for real. And Burgum, the billionaire governor from North Dakota, it would be great for him to suddenly show up at 12% in, you know, third place. Um, you know, cause then he would get more attention at the debate if he can get in. Yeah. Now I've got some critique of his messaging. I'll get into later cause I've had high hopes for him, but, uh, you know, one, one last point I'd make on this debate thing on the pledge. If I were one of them, I would sign in a barely legible scrawl, uh, the name Tommy Flanagan. Uh, which was the old Lovitz liar character. It wasn't even Flanagan. He was such a liar. Lovitz would insist people say Flanagan. So I would put that in a, in a, in a weird scribble, and uh, that, that's my way out. But those are the kind of you know radical ideas that will not help you get the Republican nomination, but it would be good for a laugh. It'll be interesting to see. It's again, I don't know that I'm not suggesting that the Des Moines Register poll will be the last big event, obviously. But no, but it you, sets it up if they do right, it right. Yeah, totally. As you and I know, Murphy, that. If you're in that top three or four, if it looks like you've got a percentage that's legitimate, you're just going to get more attention. You're going to get more attention from local media, from activists, uh, finance people, back finance people, started. all those people. Yeah. There's going to be a real sort of like people are going to look at those numbers and say, oh, boy, so and so is at two percent. I just don't think it's going to happen. So I, I, I predict that's going to be something that the register throws out there, starts to frame this race. It starts to frame this race the way Iowa wants it to, which is an Iowa-centric race, particularly on the Republican side, given uh, the fiasco that happened on the Democratic side. You, you know, I would also, while we're dictating what the Iowa register and Ann Seltzer, their pollster, should do, because we know they slavishly listen to us, I'd throw out one other idea. I've been pushing for a while, but I'll do it again. If I were the crusading editor, I'd say this polling idea Gibbs came up with, the, the screw if everything is fantastic, do it. But do a second poll. We're going to spend a little money here. Uh, and poll the 172,000 people who participated, both Democrats and independents, in the last Iowa caucus and say, are you thinking of showing up? Because it's not hard to do. I think they're going to find 20% will say, yeah, I think I will. It's important to Iowa. And that changes the the mechanics of the iowa caucus in a significant way the media would go nuts over that uh and and it, it could it could change it could put the focus of the debate should it happen a little more on independent voters who were a huge swath of that that democratic caucus vote so anyway lots of fun for the register if they want to start making news we'll see if they do it oh uh, they you know they will <laughs> yeah. and look we'll all be addicted to it right we're putting them on hacks and you're beyond here explaining it to us it will be great it is a uh, look. It, it's it's a thunderbolt when it comes out. It's uh, it, it'll it'll be it'll define a lot of uh, of interesting things. Like I said, and again, it'll wipe us away from the silliness right. around national political polling for uh, a nomination in really either party. I'll still tell you that even the Iowa polls, it moves late. We're talking December, January, totally. uh, for the caucus. So this is the beginning of the beginning. In the one place there's a campaign. It's again, don't. Scott Walker was leading them, you know, at, at this time, uh, uh, maybe a month or two behind this time in the last cycle. But still, it would be great, and it would it would put the focus of the race where it ought to be. Yeah, it starts the winnowing process, right? You're going to start exactly. to see like who can put together a real campaign. Who's going to 
who's going to have the field operation, the ground operation, the fundraising operation, who right. can do all of those things. And that's what's big. Murphy, another big event yeah. that happened last week. I know you guys had uh, uh, the one and only uh, James Carvel on last week. Who, who, yeah, you know, course, I we, missed it. I'm still pissed because I, I called I, up James and he agreed to do the show. And then I had a last minute thing pop into the life. Everything's fine, but it meant I was not there. But Mark McKinnon put on the battle yeah. hat and showed up and, and pinched it. And it was a great episode, folks. If you haven't tuned it in, uh, Carvel's one of a kind. And I, I thought he had a very astute take on things. And I have to say, he can smell a little death on Trump in the primary, too. I'm not the only oddball out there. Uh, but well, we're, safe. Maybe the, we're safe. Maybe there's two of you. Maybe there's two <laughs> oddballs. And five candidates. But go ahead. One of either two things here to, to, to kind of saw on that a little bit. But, you know, James is still remembered by it's the economy, stupid. Right. It's that's still. And look, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it was a brilliant line in 1991 and 1992. Whether or not it, it's real today, given our wild polarization, um, you know, but I thought a really smart and interesting move last week by the Biden folks uh, to put a banner around the economy to call what they're trying to do and the things that they've passed Bidenomics um, to both give it a bit of a focused lens by which they'll talk about it, uh, as well as set up the contrast over the next sort of 18 months or so uh, in this race. Again, I thought it was smart because this race, th this debate is coming to them. And they sought to seize that a little bit and to begin to define how people will start to think and talk about it. Everybody from voters to the media. Um, I, I thought it was a really, really smart move. Uh, again, they know it's coming. Why not sharpen and define it? And particularly right now, when Republicans are out doing, uh, quite frankly, a lot of crazy stuff and not really focused on uh, a bunch of the kitchen table issues that I think uh, eventually it would be smart for them to get around to. Murphy, what did you think? You know, I hated it, <laughs> but I strategically agree with you. Um, it, it, they, they've got to win the battle of the economy. Right now, the the wrong track, which is a polling question we we hack, obsess on, do you think the country's going in the wrong direction? Do you think the country's going in the right direction or has gotten pretty seriously off on the wrong track? is up there in the high 60s to 70. That is a deadly number for an incumbent president. I don't care if they're running a, a chicken in a tuxedo against you. You're in a race if you're fighting a wrong track like that. You can ask President uh, George H.W. Bush. You can ask Jimmy Carter. There's a, a whole bunch of Well, they got to move that number, and it's mostly driven, not all, but by the economy. So I'm a 1,000% with you that they have to engage in the economy. Absolutely. they got to win middle-class economics. I don't really like the branding of Bidenomics in our cynical era. Um, I would be doing turning point if I were them because uh, Biden likes to brag too much. Here are 48 things I've done for you, reelect me, like all incumbents. I've never met an incumbent who doesn't have an idea for the first spot being, hey, idiots, here's what I did for you. Uh, you owe me your vote. Well, you got to meet people where they are, and they don't believe things are going that great. There are good stats, but it's not the perception. So if I would get Biden out of bragging. And into, here's the news you don't know, a couple of good stats, right? stats. We are at the turning point. So the question going forward is, who's going to win and who's going to lose? Who am I fighting for to bring this thing home? Because those are the big decisions we got to make. And then they go into all their communist, you know, class warfare stuff that you guys love <laughs> about make the rich pay everything and the, like, you know, blah, blah. I hate all of it. But uh, I think that is a better move. Yeah. And starting out with Biden's admitting, hey, I get it. 
Because I think right. Biden's biggest problem in the economy is not so much people are cranky about it, though that is a huge problem. His big problem is they don't think Grandpa knows. And they don't know if Grandpa's got his hands on the controls here because he's old. So Biden leveling with people a little bit, but declaring a turning point, you know, end of the beginning of the big change. And here's evidence to prove that. But I get it. I know. I hear you. Uh, would, would be better. Bidenomics to me, I, I, I get the pitch for it, but I think they are... They're, they're getting ahead of their skis on that a little bit, just that phrase, because I think it says bad economy Biden equally well, and that's not such a great subtext. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of uh, in 2012, we grabbed Obamacare from uh, thinking that was uh, Republicans using it as a, as a pejorative and saying, yep, that's it. That's what we'll call it, too. We'll call right. it Obamacare and we'll start to drive it. Now, the numbers weren't great then on it and they got better. I think that's the case with Bidenomics. If you look at you know, where consumer confidence is, where people think inflation is, where inflation really is going uh, at the moment. I, I think as a banner, it's going to probably look stronger in three months uh, or, and even six months than it does yeah, now. I but that. I think important to get out there and just shape it and, and understand. And I think it also sort of shows people like, you want to have a debate about this? Uh, you think you want to think it's, it's something that, uh, we don't want to talk about. Well, it is something we want to talk about and here's how we want to talk about it. Cause again, I go back to 2012 when then vice president Biden and then president Obama were running. Look, it's not a, you don't want to make it a referendum on you. You want to make it a choice, right? You've heard Biden say this about, you know, the alternative versus the almighty. And I think he's setting up or trying to set up that there's a real choice in that at that fork in the road decision about what what's our economy going to look like going forward the stuff that you hate but in 2012 it, it it worked because it was about who you're fighting for and how you see it not yeah. just on the temperature of the economy so I, no i just think biden wants a motive fight totally i just think he has to convince them that there's have hope have confidence we're at the turning point we've done the work we've earned it this thing is turning now the inflation is going down not up employment's going up not down i mean it sound like al gore in the old stuff i know but, yeah, <laughs> right front, left left up down all around uh that's a great that, line great series it, oh too. it was the yeah. best riff he's ever had uh way back in 92 in the clinton campaign what should be up is down um so anyway i i think there's a pre-step they've got to do where they're going to trip over their shoelaces but if they can get there, then they can pivot a little because they take the huge thorn out of the electorate's toe and they yep. can say, now let's talk about the secret plan these guys have. It starts with national police arresting people who want to have an abortion. It starts with the Supreme Court that will take all your rights away because uh, it's been the you know, zealots, blah, blah, all their stuff, much of which I disagree with. But as you say, politically, yep. they can sell some tickets there. So we will see. It will require discipline from Biden, too, which is not a long bet I want to make. Because uh, it's hard to get him off the uh, here. Here's what I did for you. Because uh, you know Biden, people forget Biden's only had one tough election in his career. I'm not counting a party primary. Delaware is a layup state. He's never dealt with a lot of angry swing voters, uh, and he was a sidecar on Obama. I don't think he made any difference there, but he did beat Trump. That was the one. And believe me, beating Trump is an accomplishment. It, it is not the Olympics because Trump is radioactive and insane. So I just don't know if Biden has the gut for the kind of communication he's going to need to take charge of this thing, show connection, 
set it up to land on Bidenomics is a lot better than Trump or whomever. I don't think it'll be Trump. Disasternomics. That takes a, 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 some messaging skill I have not seen from the guy. But we're seeing if he can get a motive fight, he'll he'll score with it. All right. So I, you, you sort of laid it in there and I you talked a little bit about Carvel, too. So let's let's go ahead. We got to We've got to have our uh, our weekly or biweekly fight on uh, <laughs> the str- the strength of Donald Trump, because and, and here's my exhibit this week. Murphy is Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, goes on CNBC and has uh, a moment of sheer truthfulness right looking into the camera and says i'm not sure donald trump is the strongest candidate obviously i'm paraphrasing uh and i think everybody at mar-a-lago went what in the ever-living blank is going on and calls ensued and probably nasty texts and nasty emails and whatnot and sure enough maybe three hours later he's doing a conservative interview saying Donald Trump's really strong. Look at his poll numbers. He's stronger than he's ever been. And all of a sudden, good looking too. Right. It's just like all of a sudden, I mean, man, I talk about a flip flop alert, but Murphy, walk me through if Donald Trump's in danger of losing his grip, how come everybody is, uh, once they make a messaging mistake that tells the actual truth about Donald Trump, do they rush to the cameras to say, no, 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 no. I was just kidding. In fact, I not only was just kidding, I was completely wrong with myself, and now I want to set the record straight. Well, Kevin has a particular skill at sliding under a closed door when when required. But remember, Putin looked like the strongest guy in the world, and then two days later, there are two battalions heading north toward Moscow at 50 miles an hour. Um what drives all that is Kevin's caucus politics inside the Republican conference, where he's basically got two groups who hate each other. He's got the core Freedom Caucus radicals who hate him, would love to depose him as speaker, but don't have quite enough power. Then he's got kind of around that, that's like the pit in the peach, a bunch of MAGA Republicans who are afraid of their base and some true believers who Trump is God. Until one day, God can't throw a lightning bolt. It'll change in, a, in, in 12 hours. Then he's got a, another group, not a majority, of regular trusty chairmen, Chamber of Commerce Republicans. You saw some of them went public this week. There was a story, I can't remember Politico or uh, The Post about there. They went out and told the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, we don't want any of the money we raised to be spent on, you know, Freedom Caucus nutcases because they're, they're in tougher districts, some of which Biden carried. So he's balancing this act. He knows he's got all the knife and fork eaters, but he's constantly trying to fight off giving a cause celeb to the, the Freedom Caucus already, already hate him, so they don't matter, matter as much, but then kind of the soft Trump congressman who, who still... If Kevin starts sounding like Christie's third cousin, they will go into full revolt. And so his whole life is balancing these uh, these factions there to hang on to the speakership by barely any vote. So Kevin's politics are not the politics of the Iowa caucus or the New Hampshire primary as much as they are the insider caucus of the Republican conference, which has a lot of Trump people in it. Now, I think they're a, they're a lagging indicator. But, you know, we'll find out. I could be wrong. I mean, I, I we should make a big bet, but I do want odds because I'm out on a limb here. But I, I just smell they want something new. Now, it might be DeSantis. I think the media has written him off a little too quickly. Could be Scott, who I think is going to do very well in Iowa. And, and let me take a minute here 
Just to send a heartfelt note to my crush of last month, Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota. Dear Doug, I loved your video when you announced a Westerner, a real-world conservative from far outside Washington, great biography, telegenic. It was all there. Echoes of Ronald Reagan, even. I thought, wow, you've got a real a real shot maybe to be the interesting guy. And you're a self-funder, so you don't have to worry about neurotic donors and national polls for at least until the Iowa caucus, you can buy a shot. And then what happened? My heart has been broken. You are running for Secretary of Energy. People ask you what time it is, and you want to talk about domestic oil. Good, I'm for domestic oil. Not that much. I just got an electric car, and I love it. Not a Tesla. But I... Uh, I'm waiting for the wider message. You're the hero from the West. You're riding in to save the town from the crazy and remind us of what our conservative principles ought to be. But instead, I'm hearing a lot about drilling for oil in North Dakota. It's a one-trick pony. It's a good issue. It's not a presidential campaign. Now, you've still got time. But that $3.5 million, $4 you've spent on ads in Iowa may indeed give that poll that we were talking about earlier out there a little lift. You may get a second look after you're spent. Don't blow it. Get a message. Big, big, big. President, president. Not governor of North Dakota. Nobody cares about the governor of North Dakota. Don't make that mistake. Go big. Grab your opportunity. Time is a wasting. All right. Thank you, Gibbs, for that that uh, wow. indulgence but i had hopes for that guy and i still do man that was uh i'm i'm i almost shed a tear there that was in that music <laughs> i can tell I swooned gosh jeff i don't even want to know what the soundtrack is like when he starts talking about gina raimondo so uh, we'll save that for uh for a different day let's get into some mailbag questions but before we do yeah. uh, murphy a year ago everything got roiled by the supreme court and the supreme court ended this term with a bit of a bang on lgbtq Q plus rights, uh, affirmative action, Biden's student loan program. I, I don't think that these three individual decisions carry nearly the power that the Dobbs decision does. But boy, I think the uh, I, I'm interested in the fact that I think you're going to see Democrats now for the second cycle in a row run campaigns that talk a lot about the Supreme Court in a yep. way that Republicans used to for 15 or 20 years. Anytime you talk about federal judges, it was a Republican doing it. The approval rating in the court is an all-time low. Uh, if you're a justice and you want a free fishing trip, there's probably a donor uh, who's got millions of dollars of private jet, and lo and behold, a case in front of the Supreme Court. So I, I think you've got a lot. It's a target-rich environment for Democrats to talk not just about what happened this term, but wrap it all in with Dobbs, throw in uh, throw in a little bit of, uh, of, of, of questionable ethics, uh, and I think, boy, you've got a real stem winder for part of your stump speech. Yeah, if you can fix the economy or, or at least break it even, so your tiebreaker, I think it's all Dobbs. Dobbs is the is the big, big, big issue, and the Republicans are running right into the wood chipper on it. They're taking the bait. The other stuff, though, starts to create, and I alluded to it before, this perception of for the first time in memory, the Supreme Court is in the business of taking things away rights that people perceive they had. Now, I, I frankly would love a thoughtful debate on constitutional law, which is the underpinning of all this stuff, but that's not the way politics works anymore. Now it's my team, your team. Uh, they're on the other team. They're a bad team, you know, make a change. So I think the court will have a 
bigger profile in the presidential than maybe it ever has. And I think that's driven by a combination of things, but mostly Dobbs and the Republicans are, the smart Republicans know this is a problem, but nobody has a plan to deal with it. Well, they're not so smart Republicans, which these days you need a pretty big uh, meeting hall to fit them all in on, on the Hill love the abortion war. They want to go to the belt with new limitations. And boy, oh boy, that uh, we got a little preview of that in the last uh, midterm. But uh, I think that lesson may be taught again. And it could be the secret weapon of the Democrats, at least in a lot of swing states. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. And now a word from our sponsors. All right, Murphy, let's get to some questions. Play the music. It's listener mailbag. If you have a question for the hacks, just email it to us, hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. All right, Robert, we're going to get through a bunch of these. Fire them up. I got one that's going to be just a fun one to start with. There are a lot of political events. This is from Tiff. There are a lot of political events centered around food, the steak fry, fish fries, hot dish house parties. What's the tastiest political event you have ever attended, Murphy? Wow, that is a I'm going to tell you I'm going to give you an answer while yeah. while you think because let me tell you I alluded to this earlier. I love me a state fair. Uh and if you go to the right state fairs, you can get anything fried. And yeah, no, it's state. true. You can get an engine block fried. Both between the Illinois State Fair where uh they have the each of the parties comes and has a day where they do speaking or the Iowa State Fair, I got to tell you, Murphy, I must have eaten 30 pounds of fried cheese, <laughs> uh, fried Oreos, fried Twinkies, fried Snickers, all of those things. I mean, I remember the Illinois State Fair driving around in a golf cart. Yep, I had a golf cart, uh, which was good because by the end I couldn't walk. Right. Uh, and I just ate everything that was fried and dipped in chocolate and covered in what It was glorious. Uh, the fish fry is... is uh, in South Carolina with uh, Jim Clyburn is good, but I'm going to say state fairs. Yeah, I, I would say that too. I've had the same experience. Uh, I'll, I'll give you two quickly. One is kind of a funny one. The short one is on McCain 2000, we were on a mission, and Lanny Wiles, our head of advance, was a good Southern boy and a genius at this, that have all the country's best barbecue. Uh, so mm. it was, we'd either go there or it would be sent to us in the hotel or whatever. Oh my God. Uh, I had the, I, I almost fist fights broke out over mustard sauce versus tomato base. But anyway, I had a real barbecue education. And one of the great barbecue cooks <laughs> of all time was the late, great John McCain, who loved to grill barbecue, uh, up in his, uh, little, little getaway, uh, in Arizona. And, uh, I have a lot of good memories of that. I'll tell you one fast, funny story. I can't name the place cause I like being alive. But in a northeastern area, uh, we went to a little restaurant, uh, not that little, but but incredibly good and just remarkable. Some local, I'll call them characters, and there's some drinking involved, and now it's 2.30 in the morning, and Gasp. we're in a, in a place where you can't get a cab that late. So one of the gentlemen who uh, was, uh, I think, in a, in a very organized uh, line of work, said, don't worry, we'll get you a ride. And there were like eight of us. A call was made, and two gypsy cabs pull up, like Chevy Caprices without paint. 
But notice they had identical, very noticeable dents on the side, and <laughs> the license plates appeared to be identical. And one, one of the knowledgeable locals said, yeah, they're using the switch cars. Come on. And uh, so I, I, I want to thank the, uh, one of the, 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 the five organized groups that gave us a ride home that night. That, and the food was unbelievable. And, yes, it was Italian food. Oh, I see the question wants to know the worst. Uh, in South Manchester, New Hampshire, there's the French-Canadian Quarter there, uh, which is uh, politically very active. And there, I won't name it, but it's a famous restaurant. And I was goaded uh, on the trail to try Poutine or Poutine, which is a delicacy. Oh, my God. I, uh, poutine. I, poutine. 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 Well, I had that some poutine. That stuff's good. Oh, God, it almost put me in the hospital. I needed a heart stent an hour afterward. It's like, I got oh, sick and man. it was terrible. Cheese curds and gravy and all that sort of, oh, man, sign me up, Murphy. <laughs> all right. Next time, we're in, maybe we'll do a live Hacks on Tap during the primary, and I'll take you there and see if you can handle that stuff. I'll be there you go. toast. All right. Well, let, <laughs> let me see. Boy, we have so many good questions. going to try to get through a bunch of them. This is another story one, like the food. Uh, this is from Pat. Pat says, I was in line to meet my congressperson recently, and I remember chuckling at the cast of characters with me. What's your favorite funny story from uh, meeting constituents? Well, there are a lot, but I'll remember one of the very first races I did. I was still a student at Georgetown, and there was a member of Congress uh, from the Long Island machine who was in real trouble. Uh, that's an, uh, used to be quite a Republican organization there. So primaries were, were unheard of, but, uh, this was, uh, Congressman Bill Carney of Fishtail, the old first district because of controversy over the Shoreham nuclear power plant, which he supported. He barely won a primary in machine Republican Long Island. So I got a call from the great Maxine Fernstrom. Uh, no consultants wanted to really do the race because they thought Carney was going to lose. I was a starving guy who'd done a few radio ads, uh, so she gave me a call, and I, I jumped at it. Uh, and a little later, uh, and Max was great. She had a very kind of dry uh, sense of humor and always calm, no matter what. Uh, anyway, she called back a few days later, you know, so I could meet the congressman on the telephone. And she picked up the phone, said, "All right, hang on." And then I heard a barking dog, a large barking dog and a crash something falling over and a lot of muffled shouting and then max came back on and said uh, sorry we're gonna have to rearrange that i'm at the district office and the congressman has just uh, climbed out the window to escape an irate constituent with a doberman <laughs> wow. welcome to long island so uh, he went on to win and that's what got me started that that race let me ask you a one a little closer to your to home for you, uh, Murphy. This one it comes from Brian. What is Gavin Newsom's end plan? He's been placing uh, placing himself more and more into the media space, appearing on Fox News with Hannity, running ads in Cal, uh, running ads in Florida, and becoming a direct cha challenge to DeSantis. Is he setting him up? Is he setting himself as a front runner if something should happen to Biden in the coming months? And if not, what is he up to? Well, he is, I think it's all a little too clever by half, but but Gavin is a, a talented politician on the Democratic side. And he's got a little of, of what I like to call California-itis. You know, having worked the East Coast forever and now living on the West Coast, I've, I've, I've kind of seen it from both ends. And what California-itis is, you're sitting there, you're governor of California, which is like being president of France. You know, you have this huge, massive thing that you're in charge of. Yet, you've got a mountain range and a lot of desert between you and the East Coast punditocracy elites 
who tend to look out to California think Jerry Brown and roll their eyes. So he is trying to get on the radar screen for the future. He's in his second term, not a lot to do in California, and there's a little bit of the Rodney Dangerfield. I don't get any respect. So they're doing campaigny things. They run ads. They're trying to pick fights. They're just trying to become nationally famous among Democrats as a hope for the future kind of guy and not be out in the California desert, so to speak, uh, as far as attention from uh, primary voters across the country and opinion makers. I don't think he is hoping for anything bad to happen to Biden. I would be shocked. But he does want to get in on the action and be mentioned as a post-Biden contender, because that the minute this presidential race is over, and I think maybe even during it, the media noise machine will move on to who's next, and he wants to be in that game, so he's doing a lot of unconventional things to get noticed, because he thinks otherwise he'll be lost out in California. I think that's what he's thinking. It's a little, it would bug me if I were the White House political director. It's like, take a breath, <laughs> see you in a year, go be a great surrogate for us, and I think he's trying to do some of that, but it, uh, it, it, it does look a little grasping and clumsy to me, but I, I get the problem, which past presidential wannabes, Cranston, you know, you can go down the list, obviously, Brown, uh, from California have faced trying to get into national Democratic primary politics. Okay, Gibbs, here's an ironic question from Bobby. Do you think Biden will debate RFK Jr.? If you don't think it is bound to happen right now, then what percentage in the polls does RFK Jr. have to have to force a debate? Hmm. Good question. Uh, I think there's virtually zero chance uh, that Joe Biden is going to debate RFK Jr. I don't think Joe Biden is going to debate anybody until we get into the general election. And I don't think he should. First of all, let's just be clear. RFK Jr., you can't debate him because he'll just make something up. I mean, he's he's you know, going to, you know, page 38 of some study from such and such a place that says X. And it's just, you can't wrap your, your, your arms around what he's trying to say. It's, uh, it is it fomenting misinformation at a clip that, uh, it, it only seen by one other candidate in this race. And that's Donald Trump. So I, I don't think there's any danger that Joe Biden's going to go anywhere near that. I don't actually think there's going to be any need to do that because, uh, and we talked about this with, with Maggie and, Jonathan Martin a couple weeks ago, you know, there may be some bumpiness around the fact that Biden doesn't put his name on the ballot in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, to protect the new status uh, of South Carolina as as first in the nation. But I just don't see that there's going to be an apparatus or a need for to to get into that debate. I think this is um, uh, going to be wrapped up pretty quickly. And look, the only people that are supporting RFK Jr. are also people that are supporting either Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. D- don't make no mistake that the the energy that he's getting, uh, if you you know, energies in air quotes, uh, and the attention that he's getting is because uh, uh, some rich conservatives are trying to play uh, funny business with the primary. Yeah, he's definitely going to be on the cover of Useful Idiot magazine because he's totally become kind of a plaything for them. And I don't think Biden will debate him, shouldn't. I totally agree. I do think that RFK Jr., be clear, uh, is getting more famous, and that's not so good for him. The second and third look are a lot worse than the casual knowledge of the name. So he's also getting expectations because he's been so noisy. So while there is an opportunity for somebody to get a little protest anger uh, against Biden in New Hampshire, I think he's he's going to implode, and, and uh, I wouldn't debate him. I wouldn't give him that oxygen. I'd let him keep imploding. And now, a word from our sponsors. 
right, Murphy, another one from you. This one from Carl with a K, not our, uh, maybe your friend Carl Marx. Uh, DeSantis <laughs> recently released an ad bashing Trump for voicing support for the LGBTQ plus community. Do you think in 2023 this issue really has support? I think most young people, including Republicans, absolutely support the LGBTQ plus community. What say you, Murphy? Oh, I think uh, Carl is right. As demography moves and older voters go to the great precinct in the sky, younger voters are very pro-gay uh, rights. So this, this thing has been moving for a while, um, and the Republican Party has changed dramatically. Now, there still are nooks and crannies of older conservative primary voters on the Republican side of the faith community, but it's a sliver of what it once was, and that's great progress for America. I thought the DeSantis, uh, I think it was a super PAC ad, was very strange. Um, it, uh, to say the least. It was weird on a lot of levels, uh, so I don't quite know uh, what's going on there, but uh, I don't think it uh, I don't think it accomplished anything they were hoping it would accomplish unless they wanted an insanely weird ad out there to glue to DeSantis, who's weird enough, doesn't need this to help. And I don't understand. I, I guess this is what you have to do, Murphy, which is you're going to run to the right of Donald Trump. I, I just don't I don't really get how that works in a general election. I don't really get how you, that works. You pop up and you're the nominee and you've positioned yourself uh, as as crazier, kookier than Donald Trump. It's a very interesting political strategy and one I'm not sure works well at all. Very strange ad. Gibbs, for you, Gertrude wants to know, House progressives, boo, are calling for changes to the Supreme Court after they handed down a slate of decisions affecting affirmative action, student debt cancellation, and LGBTQ plus protections. Do you think they will actually change the format of the Supreme Court? And this is mostly, correct me if I'm wrong, expand the court, right? More more people. I think so. I think that's what, uh, look, I, I, you know, I, I think it is safe to say that's certainly not going to happen uh, in the next few years. It's certainly not going to happen with with Joe Biden, former Judiciary Committee chair, who, who's uh, every bit... Um, sort of a traditionalist when it comes to Supreme Court. The, the one thing I think would be interesting, Murphy, is uh, do you get eventually something uh, around the edges of this, which is Supreme Court term limits? Uh, you know, and, and I'm not sure term limits are a hugely popular thing uh, writ large, but and, and there's certainly places that have tried them and, and it may or may not make government all that more effective. But I do think the idea that presidents are term limited Members of Congress can be voted out, but boy, once you support or appoint a Supreme Court nominee, uh, they're there on they're there until they decide to walk away uh, or they pass away. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised, particularly given what's going on now. I mentioned this earlier. You know, the number of people that uh, that approve of what the Supreme Court is doing is at an all time low. It's way, you know, 20, 30 points less than it was just two years ago. Some of that's the, a bunch of that's the Dobbs decision. What you said, Murphy, which is the court's now in the business of taking things away that for 50 years uh, they had added. Uh, And then again, I do think there's some real ethical concerns around um, what Clarence Thomas has done, what what now Justice Alito has done uh, in taking these trips um, from wealthy donors, again, all of whom have business in front of the court. I mean, if they were in politics, they'd be in a just a full-on firestorm based on some of that stuff. So, are they gonna? Are we gonna pop up and have thirteen Supreme Court justices instead of nine? We're not. But term limits is something I could see. 
You know, I'll just add a footnote on the Alito thing you mentioned. Uh, you know, I wasn't on the plane, but I know Paul Singer. He's a good guy, and he's one of the largest supporters and has been for years of uh, marriage equity. And I'll bet Alito got an earful on that issue. So that door might be swinging both ways as to what uh, Paul Singer cares about on the court. Jennifer asks uh, Murphy, I'm genuinely puzzled when I hear a Republican say they don't necessarily love Trump, but they'll still vote for him because they like his policies. What policy platform did the Trump administration articulate? Well, it was more subtext. It was, we're going to get those bastards. That was pretty much the policy platform, but careful. Voters love to talk about policy, but they're, they're misleading you, uh, Jennifer. Voters vote for all kinds of cultural cues and other things. And there are a lot of Republicans who don't necessarily love Trump, but boy, they love hating his enemies. And so it's kind of like Red Sox fans who may quietly really dislike the pitcher, but that doesn't mean they're going to put on a Yankee cap. But there's, I believe, cracks in that foundation. It's not so much about policy right now. Uh, People are exhausted with Trump and the Republican Party, and they think he's going to lose to Biden, and they don't like Biden. So I think Trump is pretty vulnerable. You've heard me talk about that before. So I would say in a larger sense, the Republican Party is in a policy crisis now because a lot of us traditional conservatives are not crazy about the populism, which is really what Trump came out of. You look at spending and the fiscal issues we care about, Trump's record, not so great. And the question is, will we evolve beyond that? Will we get kind of a Trump light imitator like a DeSantis or will we get Trump again? And we're going to have a huge hard fought primary to sort that out. So Baron Gibbs, this is from Pete. I don't think it's Buttigieg. He's been a little busy lately. Pete wants to know, all this talk of classified documents and protocols for accessing them are overwhelming. Did any of you have security clearance? And if so, what was it like to get that? And what was the process for accessing classified documents and then returning them? And I've seen your guest bathroom gives in the mansion. You have literally wallpaper of classified documents. I, I know you'd love to keep a few. Uh, Pete, this is a great question. I'm going to give you a very short answer, but yes. Uh, uh, and if Axe was here, he would say this as well. Axelrod and I both had uh, security clearances from our time in the Obama administration. You fill out, uh, you have to fill out a pretty long form about who you are, your travel. You go through a background check. Uh, you put in, uh, uh, you, you put in a lot of information about places you've lived in, uh, jobs you've had, clients that you've had. The FBI calls. Uh, around to different people that know you and asks a series of questions. Uh, they're trying to figure out if you could be compromised uh, is the short of it. Uh, and then you get a top secret uh, uh, clearance. Axe and I both had a, a clearance level above top secret, which is called SCI. And it's basically for compartmentalized uh, intelligence. And what that means is it, it may be, it may be say we, we're in the situation room, you're in an SCI meeting, which is, it's a classified top secret meeting on Afghanistan, but there may be parts of, of say, Afghan intelligence that's even more highly uh, uh, top secret uh, or, or more highly classified than even just the general stuff. And I'll tell you a quick story about that. That's an even more rigorous process. Uh, you go into the, the last thing you do, Murphy, is you go into a room. You walk into this room and you notice there's about 12 portraits on the wall. And you start looking around and you realize, these guys all look familiar. And then in walks the FBI agent and they say, do you notice the portraits on the wall? And you say, yes, they all look very familiar. Um, because 
they're all convicted former spies, Murphy. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the FBI guy says, we're about to give you a clearance. Um, you're about to get access to information that people want and people will pay a lot of money for. Uh, and and we have room on up, the wall. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you give this up, we'll be we'll put your picture on this wall here and you won't like it. And let me tell you, it scares the hell out of you for good reason, Murphy. Uh, I spent I had an SCI clearance. I spent most of my time trying to get out of SCI meetings uh, right. unless they were on things like Afghanistan, because there's just stuff you don't want to know. Um, but, you know, look, it, it is, you know, every day. And, and I'll just again tell it quickly. Um, you get information that's marked top secret, uh, and it's in a, a special folder. And inside the press secretary's office, there's a an enormous safe. And if any of that information or those documents don't go back to the Situation Room that day to be shredded and burned, you have to put those documents inside of your safe. And 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 I cleaned that safe out when I left the White House, and I gave everything either to the Situation Room to burn or to somebody on the National Security Council to keep in their safe. So. Uh, it's not hard. What Trump did is, uh, is bad. It, it endangers the country. It endangers sources. Uh, it, it, there are mistakes that get made. Uh, but in Trump's case, it, it's, it's pretty obvious. He was trying to keep these documents in, in a way that you just shouldn't. Oh, totally. It's, it's an affront on so many levels. And, you know, he's a lawless thug. Uh, I never had an official's, uh, uh, White House security clearance. I never worked officially in the White House. I worked for presidents before. I did do one cool super secret thing and I can't talk about it, but, uh, my code name was, uh, the chicken. All right. So, uh, <laughs> all right, Murphy, I got one. Last yeah, let's question. do one more, one more here. Let's go out on this one. Cause I think this one might be kind of a fun one. Uh, this comes from Gloria. I am sure you hacks have been on many a campaign bus. Murphy, what is your favorite story or memory from a campaign bus? Oh boy. Spend a lot of time on campaign buses working on a book. And so I'm going to save one with Arnold. That's funny, but I will tell you the origin of the famous McCain bus in 2000. And this is kind of uh, a little bit, I don't think I've ever talked about this before, but, uh, I had the great honor of working for the uh, Canadian Conservatives in, in 1995. Not very publicly. I got caught later, and that, that turned into a thing. But I would uh, sneak up to Ontario and help the great Mike Harris, who would later win two terms as premier of the, the great province of Ontario. I love my time in Canada. I like Canadians a lot. Great old joke. How do you get 25 drunk Canadians out of a swimming pool? Hey, guys, please get out of the pool. But um, boom. But the Canadian campaigns are all about the bus tour because they're quick and very intense. And in the first day of the campaign, when the writ is dropped in, in Canadian political speak, which means they announced there's going to be election in X days, 38 or whatever the, the number was, you unveil your bus. You've got a, often a candidate bus and a press bus because it's the preferred way of campaigning around the provinces. And you unveil the thing. And so you've had it in storage, and it's an arms race between the different campaigns of who has the coolest bus, which one has the best cellular service and best kitchen. Uh, it's incredible. And the parties, and they're all logo, you know, done up and, and wrapped and everything. So in 95, we were running the Common Sense Revolution campaign for Mike Harris, who was a challenger. And uh, the bus was so damn cool. The Canadian guys did it under the leadership of Tom Long and Leslie Noble, our campaign chair people. It had an incredible bus. And I looked around and I thought, you know, this could be interesting. And later, the McCain bus kind of happened organically. It started out as a 16-passenger van. 
but we we learned some lessons from the Canadians. Let me let me put it that way. And uh, with the help of a great advanced staff and, and uh, uh, great staff in general, uh, the McCain bus was not as fancy, but it was the same idea of a bus-centric message campaign. And uh, McCain added his own polishes to it, the idea of kind of a rolling press conference with no barrier to media access and a lot of stuff that was new and fresh. So anyway, I, I, I thank the Canadian bus teams of the 90s for uh, giving me a useful education in that. Now, as far as crazy stories, I'll just say what happens on the bus stays on the bus. But a lot of fun <laughs> and hijinks, as you can imagine, yeah. from people under pressure having fun. And uh, I have fond memories of many a campaign bus. Murphy, I'll tell one really quickly, uh, and then we'll get out of here and let people enjoy their fourth. We traveled on a bus, and I'm going to bring a few things we've talked about here together. This was would have been sort of late December, kind of early January in 07 and 08. And we're on the bus with Obama, Axe and I are. And uh, just to be clear, Obama wasn't obsessed with polling. He wasn't obsessed with, uh, you know, uh, watching. You know, we, we watch TV on the bus and we always watch ESPN. He didn't want to watch news. He didn't want look, you, you want to kind of decompress when you're on the right. bus between events. And uh, we're we're coming in the last few days here and the Des Moines Register, we get a call. Um, the Des Moines Register's last polls come out and we're uh, we're ahead. And we're all sort of sitting in the back of the bus. And of course, Axe and I do what Axe and I should be doing is, uh, as campaign hacks in the middle of this, we start obsessing about it. We start thinking about and talking, well, this could happen. And well, what about this? And we got to think about this. And Obama looked at us and said, get out of my end of the bus. And we kind of looked at him and he's like, I don't want to mess with this stuff. You guys go to the other end of the bus. You guys do all that stuff. I just, just leave me alone. I don't, I don't want to get you know, I don't want to get all this stuff bouncing around in my head. And he literally did. And, and the truth is, you know, when we, we would be out on the bus for sort of five or six days and, you know, by about that fifth or sixth day before we would go back to Chicago to kind of have a half day to kind of decompress and do laundry, like, you know, nerves were getting a little frazzled, but he was very much like you guys, you guys, th- that, uh, that front end, that's your part of the bus. Don't come into my part of the bus. And it was good. And it was smart too. Cause the last thing we wanted to do and we should have thought of this even before that was don't put a bunch of silly stuff like campaign polls in, uh, right, in the right. candidate's Right, right. Last place head. you wanted in his head. Yeah. Right. With three days to go, with big rallies, you're trying, to your point, they're all making their decisions at the end, right? You, this is about closing the deal. Those, that one rally could make a big difference in Dubuque. That one rally could make a big difference somewhere else. And so... He was smart, kicked us out. We went to the front of the bus to Obsessed. He sat in the back of the bus, continued watching ESPN. I worked out pretty well for us. Uh, and they never let you back. Great. Many people say yeah. that was the secret to the Obama. In fact, later they got you a minivan to follow the bus. So you were yeah. driving crazy we every had, day. We had good times on the bus. It was nice to, yeah. uh, we, we weren't as, uh, uh, we didn't, we didn't do straight talk express. We did, we, we, you get on that bus and boy, you just almost immediately pass out and uh, between events, Catch a little nap before you have to go back. Well, to we would often nap while they were asking the questions. That was always <laughs> our, our little bus secret. And Todd Harris and 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 some yeah. of the old road dogs from the bus in 2000 remember when we had to give McCain a break, we would bring up the foreign press, 
you know, we'd go to all the mm. sharks from the New York Times. Of, all right. You know, and then we'd bring up Italian TV and they'd want to know about his underwear, you know, and all this ridiculous stuff. But McCain could kind of sleepwalk through that. And the stakes were low because uh, it was, you know, the, the, the Tokyo Shinburn or something. And, you know, we treat it seriously, but McCain could kind of go rote and get a little. That was kind of our, our day sleep way to get through it because he was in front of those guys all the time. All right. A few plugs to end it here. Uh, number one, don't forget our book club. Just go to our website, hacksontap.com slash book club. See how original we are? And uh, some of the books our guests and others have plugged for time. We won't plug any, but I'll have some uh, in next episode. Also, I'll just a personal plug. Uh, my old friend and client, Arnold Schwarzenegger, there is a terrific Netflix documentary, three parts, one bodybuilding, two the movies, and three the political years. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend it. It is a you're going to learn things about Arnold you don't know, and it is a lot of fun. So check that out. It's on Netflix and see what the Schwartz is up to. Murphy, you know, it was a lot of fun recording this podcast. We thought, you know, we talked before and we're like, let's do a short one, maybe 30, 45 minutes, you know, kind of in and out. Here we are. We got going <laughs> bloviators, but it was fun. <laughs> the, the gift of political gab. Here we are over an hour. So look, uh, we hope you had as much fun listening to it as we did uh, reminiscing about fried cheese and fried Snickers on the back of a campaign <laughs> bus. Uh, I bet I took a big nap after all that. Uh, but thanks for listening. Uh, Murphy, enjoy your 4th of July. Everybody else, enjoy your 4th of July. Uh, spend a little time reading the Declaration of Independence tomorrow. Good and, idea. Uh, and uh, be thankful for all the freedoms uh, that we have. Absolutely, Brother Gibbs. I could not agree more. And go on... Uh go on Twitter and look up Nebraska fireworks family. There's a lesson there for you and careful with that stuff. Enjoy the country's birthday and make the vow. I make every 4th of July, try to be a better citizen next year. It's a job and a duty. You know, you don't, you don't get to be here without having responsibility as part of America. So thank you. And we will be back. 